Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. The places that I have lived throughout my life were not naturally occurring. It wasn't an accident that these were food deserts and that this was a man-made situation. Around that time, I was starting to actually watch people that I cared about pass away. So it went from just being a statistic of, oh, you guys are more prone to heart disease and you guys are more prone to diabetes, et cetera, to like, no, I'm actually losing people. If I don't do something, I'm going to continue to lose people. And if I don't do something, when I'm 40 and 50 years old, I'm going to be going to my friend's funerals. Welcome back to another episode of At the End of the Tunnel. This week, I'm excited to introduce somebody who's working toward eliminating what she calls the food apartheid. I first met Olympia Osset on Craigslist, actually, where I posted an ad to get somebody to come and help me plant some succulents. And long story short, Olympia responded and convinced me to plant vegetables instead. And as it turns out, she was obsessed with finding solutions to America's food deserts, which are communities that lack access to affordable, high-quality, fresh foods. And after our paths crossed, I actually indirectly played a small role in helping Olympia to start her movement. You see, Olympia was vegan and living in a food desert herself. And because she didn't have a car, she would find herself having to spend hours on the bus just to get to the grocery store on the other side of town that carried the higher quality produce. And after taking several of these trips, Olympia realized that she was the change she was waiting for. And that was when she started working with local farmers to create an oasis in the middle of her own food desert, which she called Supermarket. Over the last five years, Supermarket has distributed more than 70,000 pounds of fresh fruit and vegetables. And what's remarkable is Olympia started without even having a table to sell the produce on. And to date, she still doesn't have a car or a cell phone. But after raising close to $90,000 in a crowdfunding campaign, she's now in escrow to purchase a brick and mortar location for Supermarket, which is going to help her create a centralized location for the community to gather and share in her mission of making healthy, fresh foods and meals available to all. I'm so excited to introduce you to Olympia. You're going to love her story. So without further ado, here's Miss Olympia Osset. Thank you very much, Olympia, for joining the podcast. As always, I start these conversations exploring childhood. But more specifically, I'm curious if you can think back to the old bright elementary days <laughs> in Los Angeles. <laughs> what was your favorite toy or activity as a child? Oh, my God. You took it all the way back, right? <laughs> I did. I remember that I was always trying to start clubs and stuff when I was like seven. 
I was always coming up with, with these grand plans of like, oh, we're going to do this. And then I would try to get other people to do it. And it never worked. And I also remember that we used to play like this Charmed game. Like there's a TV show on Charmed. So we would act like the people on Charmed and like play. <laughs> That's kind of the first memory that comes to mind when you ask that question. How do you play the Charmed game? You just act like the characters. It was interesting because I actually like wasn't able to watch Charmed very often, but I was just trying to play along. But it was like a show and it had like witches on there. So like everybody would be a character and then we would just like act the show out. And I also used to like Friends a lot. I used to I used to watch Friends when I was in elementary school. And what's an example of a club you would have started back then? I can't even remember. Just random things that I wanted done or that I wanted to do. And I was like, oh, like, we're going to do this. Like, just like elaborate plans. I have like a distinct memory of a clear backpack that I had and like some writings on like a card size sheet of paper or whatever. Did you have any favorite toys? Not that I can remember. I can't really remember. You didn't play with toys? I'm sure I did. I definitely played with toys, but I can't remember like a favorite. <laughs> like what was my favorite one? Talk a little bit about your childhood in terms of, you know, were you happy? Were you a single child? What was what was that like for you? Childhood was interesting. Like when I look back, you know, like most people kind of miss their childhood or like wish they could be kids again. Um, the thing that I miss most about childhood is like how imaginative I was and I didn't really have any um, limits on my imagination. Childhood was challenging because I did grow up by myself mostly for most of my childhood and I live with my dad. So there are a lot of challenges in my childhood, but overall, I guess it was good. When you say you don't have, you didn't have limits on your imagination, how did that show up? What did you do that exemplified the limitless imagination? For instance, I had this idea. It's so ironic now because like other people have proposed it at this point. But I think I was in middle school. I had this idea that when I got older, I was going to take over California and California will become a separate country. And I split it into four parts. And one of the states was Tupacalypse. Um, Tupacalypse. <laughs> Tupacalypse. Tupacalypse. That's after the rapper? Yeah, Tupacalypse. Another state was Shadyville. And I can't remember what the other two states were, but I like actually had plans in my notebook and like had California sectioned into four pieces. And I was like, I was dead serious. Like I was going to make it happen. And what are the attributes of Tupacalypse? People just <laughs> listen to Tupac all the time. <laughs> um, no, it's just named after him, you know? I don't think I have plans about what they did. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? It depends on what age. The first profession that I wanted to be was a singer. Throughout middle school and high school, I aspired to be a rapper. And then when I graduated from high school, I was planning to be a writer. What made the shift from rapper to writer? Just people's expectations and like parental, like, oh no, like that's never going to work and you have to pick a real career and like writing is not even good enough like you need to get a business degree or be an engineer or something i don't know aside from your dad did you have any mentors or anyone who was guiding you at that point in your life 
I've been fortunate to have some really amazing teachers in my life. Like, even though I haven't had the most success socially as a child, like socially, I was very challenged, but I was always fortunate to like have really good relationships with my teachers. So I was close with a lot of my teachers. I went to Hamilton High School. There were um, small learning communities there. So like I was in BIT, um, which was Business Interactive Technology, but I also took classes in both of the magnets, which were the Music Academy and the Humanities Academy. And so Mr. Uwe was really helpful. He taught me a lot of digital things. Like I was really interested in like design. And at that time there was MySpace. So I was like always building out HTML and like using fireworks and things like that. So I learned a lot of my strengths on the technological side from, from Mr. Uwe. There are a couple other teachers in the BIT Academy that really helped me. Yeah, like literally, I ha- I feel as though I had the all-star team of teachers. Mr. Bruning was really helpful in my um, electronic music class and recording club and things like that, and just always encouraging me. And one of the teachers that changed my life was Mr. Kaplan, who was my history teacher when I was a junior in high school. And that's when I started to learn about my eyes were kind of open about race in America and he had us watching Bastards of the Party and reading A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. So I was much more aware than my peers and it turned into like a lot of arguments. But it's funny because like, you know, when I was graduating college, like fast forward years later, then like, then everybody starts to talk about systemic racism. But I was like learning about that when I was 16. Mm-hmm. You lived close to the the expo. It would be called a metro stop, but it's a subway stop in Los Angeles. Were you doing any gardening back in those days? Or were you having any relationship with plants? My relationship with plants started in college. So I went to Howard University. In my freshman year, I started going to these things called power study groups. And I would learn about you know different things about the world, whether it was how food actually works, how finance actually works, how pharmaceuticals actually works, war, things like that. And so... One of the things I learned about was a a man named Will Allen, who was growing a million pounds of food on three acres year round in Milwaukee, like in the middle of the snow. And so I got uh, really interested in urban agriculture and community farms and had my first experiences growing food. And so after I graduated, one of my intentions or one of the things I wanted to do was to start a garden in L.A. We're going to get there in a second. Let me let me let me go backwards. How did you choose Howard? Oh, that's a funny story. So I had a really high verbal SAT score and I had pretty good grades. And so I applied to actually a bunch of schools. I applied to like Missouri at Columbia and Howard Early Action. But the other school, like I applied to like Harvard, I applied to Kenyon, I applied to a bunch of like small liberal arts schools. And so the the schools that I applied to Early Action, I got into with scholarships. The other schools that I applied to, I didn't get into any of those schools. And all of those schools, I created my own application. I felt that the common application was boring. Like, I don't know if you know about the common application, but it's just like one application. It's really boring. And they just want everybody to fill the same application out and send it to all the schools. And so instead of doing that, I took all the information that was in the common app and I like graphic designed it. So I like changed the colors based on the school that I was applying to. And I remember the lady from McAllister calling me and be like, hey, like, um, we got your application, but we're like missing something. And I was like, nope, it's all there. And she like looks and she's like, wow, it is all there. 
But yeah, I didn't get into any of those schools. So the only reason I applied to Howard, funny enough, was because a friend of mine named Mark had an older sister that was attending. And so he said he was applying early action and then I applied early action and then I got in. And so it was between Howard and Missouri at Columbia. And it was really by chance, honestly, like being from the West Coast, I really didn't know much about HBCUs um, at all. And it was really by chance. And it's also ironic because looking back on the situation, you know, Missouri at Columbia ended up having that huge scandal where the president had to step down and there were black students getting death threats on campus. And it's crazy because literally if I would have said, oh, I'm going to go here, I picked up schools because they had a good journalism program. So if I said I wanted to go here, I would have been in the middle of all of that. And it gave me a new appreciation for Howard because no matter what challenges I faced at Howard, I never had to worry about being discriminated against because of the color of my skin or like worried about anybody trying to shoot up the campus or like shoot the black kids on campus or anything like that. Right. And that's just because Howard is a, it's a black college, it's majority black uh, university. Mm -hmm. So what gave you the idea to create your own application? Own application. I just wanted, what gave me the idea? I don't know. I just wanted it to look nice, I think is what it was like. Had you seen someone else do it? Have you heard about it? Anyone doing that before? I'm just rebellious and I just didn't like the application. If I show you the application, it's so boring. Like, Like it looks so boring. And I just felt like, I'm not a robot. You Did know? you do that for any any school projects before, where the teacher was assigned <laughs> something and you were like, and you were like, ah, uh, no, I'm going to do it my way? As if, you must have done it at some point hmm. before that. I mean, I'm sure there's countless examples in my school career where I was asked to do one thing and I wanted to do something different. So I definitely have a lot of examples of that for sure with my teachers, but. Yeah, it just felt so flat and I didn't feel that anyone could really get an understanding of who I am by just looking at this very boring application. You know, like I didn't feel like it really showed who I was and I thought it would be impressive. And I was still following the rules because it still had all of the information in there. It just wasn't in the format that they asked for. But I was wrong. So you get to Howard Mm -hmm. and... You begin attending the Thursday night power study groups. What inspired you to even start going to those? So it was two, it was through two of my friends. So my friend Mark, um, who I went to Hamilton with, you know, he was into like a lot of stuff. Like he was in the Morris Science Temple, even starting from when he was in high school, he used to read a lot. So he was into a lot of stuff. We started like a black. Um, student organization when we were in high school together, along with another one of our friends. And so as soon as he got to Howard and then his sister already was at Howard. So she was kind of connected and things like that. And so I learned about it through him and through somebody that I met through him who was named Sarai, who is like to this day, one of my favorite people on the planet. So I learned about the power city groups through them. And talk a little bit about the format. So you show up and what happens? So you show up and there's a question of the night. And so the thing that was so transformative about it for me and powerful was that it wasn't a lecture. I'm sure you remember, you know, on campus, there would be all these like talks on different topics and you would go and there would be a panel and speakers and then maybe there's questions at the end. But the different thing about this was that it's something called deliberative dialogue. So there's a question of the night and everybody in the room 
has to put their minds together to create an answer or to figure out the answer to whatever the question is. And so it really challenged me to think, you know what I mean? And it really challenged me to use my brain. And when you work and use your own mind to come to a certain conclusion, it's more powerful than when somebody just tells you something. Right. What's an example of a question? I'm trying to think. I know you're going to ask that next, but it would be like general questions like, I don't know. Like, do you guys know how money was created or something like that? No, it will is be it like, like a trivial pursuit question no, no, no. or is it more like an essay type of question? It will be a question like, like maybe how do we solve black on black crime or something like that? Or how do we ensure right. the future of the, of, of the black family or something like that? It will be something that is intriguing and you want to know the answer to. And then you have to sit there and figure the answer out. Would it be like a Hotep-like discussion or would it be more no. like conservative or do you have all over the place? It just wasn't about opinions. It was all about facts. Once you were there, you were encouraged to do homework. The next time you came back, like certain statistics or things like that would be brought up or, you know, go look this person up. You'll be presented with different information. It would be like, okay, go look this up because at this point, it's your it's your job to solve it. It's sort of, it was almost like a think tank to a certain extent. And so that that was what I appreciated a lot because a lot of roundtables or discussions or panels that you go to, one person says what they think about the issue and another person says what they think about the issue, but none of it has to do with what's actually going on. And, and, it's, and the other thing is like, none of it has to do with creating solutions. It's just sort of like a sounding board and people get their feelings out. But this was very like, no, like I actually have to use my mind and like research who the top 10 who the top 10 wealthiest people are on the planet and what are their investments. And you actually have to learn. Mm. And so you heard about Will Allen. He grew a million pounds of produce on three acres of land. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's incredible. Yeah. You also experienced another shift during your freshman year at Howard. Yeah. Concerned to your, concerning your diet. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So I went vegan my freshman year in college, and it was largely due to the power study group. So the two friends that I mentioned were vegan at the time, but I didn't see myself as ever, you know, changing my diet. When I was little, I ate everything, and I wasn't a picky kid at all, and I loved food. And so I was just kind of like, oh, that's cool for them. You know, like I kind of watched Mark go vegetarian, then vegan in high school. His mom, you know, actually had some health challenges. So that's how he started learning about health and Dr. Sabi and everything before a lot of people knew about Dr. Sabi. And so I was just like, okay, that's cool. But then when I started going to these study groups and learning about the food system and there's a quote that I'll never forget that was very jarring for me. I'll just have to paraphrase, but it's basically... Diet, injection, and injunction will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of person that the powers that be see fit. It was by a man named Bertrand Russell. And this was a mathematician and philosopher who literally won the Nobel Peace Prize. And the books that he wrote were all about population control. And it was all about like, you know, during World War II or World War I, people who were very established and powerful were watching the proletariat or the average man get out of hand. And they were trying to figure out with protests and things like that. And they were just trying to figure out like, well, how do we ensure um, our power long-term and how do we stop having this problem? And how do we stop having to watch our back for a revolution? And so this guy comes along and he's just like, well, you're going to feed them trash. You're going to put certain things into their body via 
medicines and vaccines, and then you're going to create a sort of police state or you're going to create a legal system that sort of keeps people in check so that people don't even have the capacity to think about rebelling or if they do want to rebel, they don't have the mental fortitude to be able to be any sort of a real threat to the existing system. And so food just became really important to me because I no longer wanted to play a part in the destruction of my own community. And I started to understand that food was a weapon either for liberation or for oppression. So really with veganism, like I was just giving it a try. Like I was like, okay, like by the end of 2009, you know, I'm going to try to be vegan. And I didn't really put a lot of pressure on myself. I just wanted to try it. And within like two or three months, I was full blown vegan for the most part. And I kind of just never looked back and I felt great. It didn't even take as long as I thought it was going to take. I found the quote. It says, diet injections and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable. And any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Bertrand Russell. Wow. Love that. And you heard that in your power study group? Right. How many people were in this group? on a, in a given Thursday night? It would vary. Like sometimes it would be as few as seven people. Sometimes it would be up to, you know, like maybe 20 people, 30 people. The ones that I attended were always small in that way, like small enough to fit into one of the Douglas Hall classrooms. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. When you were going vegan, what did you find to be the biggest challenge? The thing that irritated me the most, I actually was talking about this with someone recently, was I was a freshman, so I was required to have a meal plan. And Sodexo is a company that provides food for a lot of colleges, but also for the prisons. And they're known for like providing like meals for prisoners for like 15 cents a prisoner. There just weren't a lot of options for me in the CAF. The only options I really had were to eat fries or, you know, get some pasta or something like that with no cheese on it. And so I tried to um, 
like petition to get them to give me a refund for my second semester as far as the meal plan and things like that, because they didn't have options for me as a vegan student. They said no, <laughs> but that was one of the bigger challenges um, that I had. So you were a dirty vegan. Oh, for sure. Like, I think that's what made it chill. And what made it easy is that I just ate the same way I was already eating. And then I just switched, yeah. like just made it vegan. And, you know, for me, that right. worked out because, you know, everybody has their different path that they take. And but it took the pressure off. And then when my body was ready and my mind was ready, my body started to tell me like, hey, I don't want to eat chips anymore. And like, actually, like I'm good on all that soy. I think if you take the first step and you get solid with the first step, then your body has the ability to sort of guide you the rest of the way. What was your concept of success at that point in your life when you're in in Howard? In the first part of my college career, there was success for my career and there, there was success at the college. So at the college, I wanted to share all the information that I was creating I wanted to have organizations that help people change and like eat better and things like that. So I started something called Respectable College Living. Or actually, I think that's in the second half of school when I started that. But I was still just wanting to start things that like help people change. I mean, I guess the one consistent thread is that I wanted there to be a culture movement and thought revolution. Like I wanted to create a revolution that changed the way people live their lives and not only inform people, but to like provide the infrastructure that they needed to change. The challenge that I ran into socially was just like, nobody knew what I was talking about. <laughs> like kind of like the same situation as in high school. Like I just became this weird person and like nobody could understand like anything that I was trying to say or anything that I was really promoting. And I didn't understand baby steps and putting things to people in digestible ways. Like I had changed really rapidly and fast and I kind of thought other people could do the same. And during the first half of college, I thought that I was going to be a publicist, like in the entertainment industry. And I was going to get the biggest entertainment people to promote more positive things and, you know, just change people in that way. And then in the second part of college, I started to have a lot of realizations about, you know, cause my, my major was PR PR and sociology. And so I interned with a publicist and I just started to understand. I had some revelations about there just being some very deep rooted things at play when it came, when it came to fame. And I started to understand that fame is created and that the people who create fame or the people who give you fame control what you do with your fame for the most part. And that the same people that create the, the weapons industry and the pharmaceutical industry and all these other harmful industries or harmful systems on the planet are the same people that are controlling media. And so I no longer had the expectation that I was going to become a publicist and kind of like move up in entertainment and create change in that way because I understood that it was rigged. And that was a really big disillusionment period for me. It really shook me to my core because there were people that I had looked up to uh, my entire life and I had loved music my entire life. And so to sort of feel betrayed by the thing that you love the most. It was a really big letdown. And there's a lot of processing that I had to do, just learning so much so fast while I was in college. Was that based on a specific experience that you happened to have interning at the PR company? No, my experiences as an intern more so corroborated what I was starting to learn via research and what just kind of the pieces of the puzzle that I was starting to put together. Probably a lot heavily influenced by the power study group, I'm imagining, right? 
I mean, Power City Group was like mostly during the first two years, I would say. But after that, like there was a lot of just independent, you know, the internet, the information age was kind of like booming at that point. And so it was the YouTube rabbit holes and the late night Google sessions and the random obscure sites that have random PDF documents about different things and the blogs and things like that. It was mostly comprised of that. After you decided, okay, I'm not going to do PR, what did you think you were going to do with your adult life? That's the point at which I founded GOIS, which stands for Get On Your Shit. And so my intention was to create a... G-O-Y-S, Get On Your Shit. Yeah, the GOIS Life. The GOISLife.com was my first baby. And my intention was to put a bunch of like documentaries and articles and things like that on there so that it could be a one-stop shop for awakening because what I was finding was that, you know, because the internet uh, was starting to boom at that point, people were learning a lot of things, but it wasn't sort of like A to Z. It was like, oh, like I found out about this random thing, but I don't have, there was no foundation and it wasn't a teaching experience. And because of that, people just had information, but they didn't, they weren't able to take action on anything that they learned. It was just emotional a lot, even like with a lot of the documentaries that came out around that time, like you would just watch the documentary and at the end of it, you would just be like, damn, shit is fucked up. And, you know, you don't really know what to do about it. So the Goy's Life was supposed to be like this information website that was tied to, like I made stickers and I put them up different places. We had like an ad at homecoming, like we did photo shoots and I made shirts. Like it was supposed to be like merchandise that drives like the for-profit side of it, but really for it to just be centered around information and informing people and things like that. And that's what, when I graduated from college, like that was my focus. And that was a big challenge because coming home, everybody's expecting you to be this like overperforming person that you've been your entire life and like go work at a corporation and like do really well. But I was so kind of broken by like everything that I had learned and just like exhausted from being in school um, that entire time. Like I really just needed a break and I just really just needed to regroup. But it's hard. Like it's hard when you're the first to do something and people don't know what you're doing. And so there were a lot of challenges surrounding that. That's around the time we met, right? It was probably like three years later. So I graduated in 2012 and then we met somewhere around either 2014 or 2015. And so during that time, you were kind of regrouping and trying to figure out how you wanted to kind of implement the Goy's life. Yes. And, you know, I just did a lot of struggling. Like I just struggled for like four years or more, you know, it was just a struggle time. It was also a really spiritual time when I graduated, you know, I became very spiritual and I got into like a lot of like spiritual practices and wanting to become an enlightened being. And so I had heard about Vipassana when I was in college. And so as soon as I heard it, like I knew it was something that I wanted to do, even though I didn't have a clear concept, like I literally thought I was going to be like, on a random mountain somewhere in a tent for 10 days and just thugging it out, just like, go ahead and meditate. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, I went to Burning Man in 2012 and I went to Vipassana, I think it was 2013. And I was going to like Inipi ceremonies, like native sweat, sweat lodges and things like that. I was just trying to find as many, as many spiritual experiences as I can. I was trying to get my friends to be like spiritual and conscious and, 
my plan was like, oh, I'm going to wait tables so that I have enough to live. And then like while I build the voice life. So were you doing that? You were doing odd jobs and stuff? Yeah, definitely lots of odd jobs. I worked at like vegan restaurants and stuff like that. There was also just random gigs that I was trying to find. This was like after supermarket started, but I remember being so broke and like just looking on Craigslist for something to do. Like I've waited in line for shoes at Supreme to get paid. Like, <laughs> I was like cleaning houses for a little bit. Like it was like crazy. Like just whatever I could do that I felt like comfortable with that was aligned with my integrity to make funds. Because the other thing is like within a couple of years, I decided that I never wanted to work like a clock in job again. I actually got fired from Real Food Daily over like a notebook. And that's the last job that I ever worked. That was like a W-2 job, I guess you would call it. That brings us to you and I meeting. And now I kind of enter into your story. I'm going to tell it from my end, and then I want you to kind of fill in the gaps from your end. Okay. So I was living in Santa Monica, and I was I had desired to have succulents and some flowers and flora on my patios. I had two patios. And so I went on Craigslist and posted an ad saying that I wanted someone to help me, someone with a green thumb to come and help me plant stuff and maybe source some stuff. And I think I was, I had offered like, you could stay at my place while you're working or something like that in the ad. And then you promptly responded to the ad. So what was your experience? Yeah. Like basically I was like doing a lot of couch surfing at that time. And I was basically in the challenge of just like, how do I find stability for myself while like not participating in the system in a way that I didn't want to participate. So I was looking for, I had like seen Craigslist Joe, which is a really inspirational film. And I was like looking for some sort of situation where I could like work in some way in exchange for a place to live, like doing something that I want to do. So I misinterpreted the ad. Light was saying he wanted somebody to stay for like a week. And I thought he wanted somebody to like continuously stay and like take care of the plants. And so I reached out and Light was like, no, no, just like for a week or whatever. But then I found out that Light went to Howard. And so I was like, oh, for sure. Like, I'm doing this for free. Like, I'll just come like help you with this plant project and stuff like that. And I just want to say that just meeting Light was so, I don't even know like how to explain it, but it was a very meaningful turning point for me in my life Or I'm just really happy I met Light, I guess, like long story short, because Light is so open and like kind and it was something that I hadn't seen kind of like, what do you call it? I hadn't really seen practice. I seen a person practice in sort of like our world, like in our crazy Western world. I hadn't seen somebody that is like living in society, like is able to like take care of themselves, but is not fearful and is not like scarcity driven. You know what I mean? Like it was like very open and he basically was like what I wanted to become and stuff. So it was really cool meeting like. You planted some tomatoes and some lemon trees and whatnot. And then we actually, we went and got repurposed soil or something like that or dirt. Yeah. Right? Was that is that what it's called? Yeah. I'm just really good. Like everybody should know that, especially at this point in my life, like I'm really good for a burnt mission, which is basically just like, I'm really good for being like, hey, like here's this project I want to do. Like, let's go get all these things. Like, let's go do these random 
things like to be able to get things because especially like when you don't have money and stuff like I'm, I was always having to find like oh like here's some succulents for like two dollars or here's some actual soil that we can use and like these people are giving away free soil around the corner so yeah everything was repurposed which I thought was really impressive yeah because um, the whole project ended up only costing like ten dollars <laughs> or something crazy like that yeah and I was you know prepared to pay all this money for pots and soil and whatnot, but you, you sourced everything locally from other people. And then on top of that, you didn't have a cell phone or a car. Right. Yeah. And that was a purposeful choice. I, at least the cell phone thing was, I, 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 I remember. Right. Is my memory correct on that? Yeah. I just, maybe I just really like making things hard on myself <laughs> and just getting things done, getting things done, like no matter what the situation is, but yeah, I definitely wasn't driving. I took the bus everywhere. Like Lyft wasn't even popular like that back then. And yeah, I took the bus everywhere. I walked everywhere, sometimes biked everywhere. And then what happened in terms of you going more in the direction of supermarket? Well, I just want to bring up the fact that Light, I still have a video of Light tasting the first tomato he ever grew. And yeah. it was pretty magical. And he really liked the tomato. And it was it was very rewarding. I think we made guacamole with that, right? Yeah. And you just ate some too. Yeah, because you would come by from time to time because you started volunteering at The Shine. So you would come to my house and we'd go together to The Shine events. I remember before The Shine was like, it literally was in someone's living room. It was in like Drew's living room. And I would just mention like, hey, like I'm doing this thing. Like, do you want to come or do you know anybody who can like come talk about this? Or do you want to come talk about gardening or something like that? So the first shine that I ever went to was actually the last one that happened at Drew's place. And I was so inspired. I was literally so inspired because it was like what I was looking for. It was like an event where people could be social. You know, it could be like grounded in spirituality. It didn't have to be at like a bar and things like that. So I was really inspired. So I started going to going to them on a regular basis. Then I ended up volunteering and Kind of where the Shine Meat Supermarket is when I won the Shine On Challenge. And so for people who don't know the Shine On Challenge, at these events, it used to be that Light would just pass a a basket around with funds in it and people would put money in it. And then it would go to like a random person. And then that person had to go do something good with the money and come show everyone. And then it, I don't remember. Yeah, by the time I won, it was like built into the ticket. And so there was a system where I don't even remember how it used to go, but I think you put your name in a basket or something. Yeah. When you, when you signed in, you put your name in a basket and then somebody on stage, like the old shine winner would like pick the new winner. So I remember sitting in the crowd watching the shine on challenge that was being presented from last time. And I literally was thinking in my mind, like, man, if I had that $400, like I could do a, a way better job. Like they don't know what they're doing. And literally, <laughs> literally, my name gets called, and it's like the the universe literally called my bluff. Like, oh, like, like, let's see what you're actually gonna do. And it was a really powerful turning point for me because obviously I was an ideas person. Like, I was always thinking about what I would do if I had the money to do so, and how I wanted to help people. And at that point, I had to actually make it happen. And so. I enlisted the support of Lonnie, my good friend at the time, also the co-founder of Supermarket. And we just went around and like did these good deeds. Like we only had $400 and we like bought gift cards to like Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and like gave them out. 
in like the McDonald's driveway or just like, you know, just like gave them out to people. Cause I experienced so many times being in the store and being on my last like $5 and being like, damn, like I actually don't have enough to cover this banana, these, this like bunch of bananas, I have to put it back and stuff. So I always thought to myself, like, wouldn't it be so amazing if we, like somebody, you know, like if we could just like help each other when we need help and stuff. And that's kind of what it was centered around. I gave out tap cards because there have been times when I had gotten tickets for being on a train without paying or I always was begging drivers for rides, like bus drivers for rides, because I just had no money. Like I was so broke. So I always was having to be like, you know, do you mind if I get a courtesy ride and stuff like that? So I we loaded tap cards up with like seven trips and we like gave it out to people especially people that we saw like didn't pay at the train and stuff like that. So you guys can check that video out online. It's really inspirational. If you just need to pick me up, um, just watch <laughs> it. So yeah, that was a big turning point. Cause I had to learn to put my money where my mouth is or my action where my mouth is. And then when we showed it at the shine, it got like a standing ovation. It ended up in like the Huffington post, like people were crying like people started doing their own versions. Like somebody went and like gave out dog food. Like we gave out dog food in the video and stuff. So <laughs> I got I got some shine community clout from that video for sure. And a couple years later, ended up starting supermarket. So talk about the genesis of that. You were traveling on buses a lot and Yeah. What happened? So I was staying on 79th and 3rd, which is the border between Inglewood and LA. And I was vegan at that point. And I was even trying to transition to raw vegan. And so the big difference with that is that like, as a vegan, if I get hungry, I can just go to rallies and get some fries and the fries are vegan, like besides them being cooked in possibly the same oil as everything else. You know, I can still eat junk food as a vegan. But when you decide to go raw vegan, like you're eating fruits and vegetables and nuts. If those things are not around, it becomes clear very fast that those things are not around. And that's basically what happened to me. I was living somewhere where there are all these fast food places, you know, liquor stores and not a lot of grocery stores. And once you dig into the grocery store, like it smelled really bad in there. The produce was old. It's like everything was close to its expiration date. And there just weren't a lot of building blocks for eating healthily in the area that I was living in. And you called that a, a food apartheid, which is a really interesting term. Did you coin that term? I can't remember. Like, other, I don't even know what happened, but other people have started using it too. So I don't know if I got it from somewhere, but I, you know, people are starting to use it now. So I was saying food desert to start with, but then at a certain point, I realized like a desert is naturally occurring in nature for the most part. Like a desert just happens. It's just there. It's just a climate that exists. On the planet, a food desert is defined as somewhere where you, you have to travel more than two miles to get to a grocery store. And so I started to understand that the places that I have lived throughout my life were not naturally occurring. It wasn't an accident that these were food deserts and that this was a man-made situation. And it's more of a food apartheid. So when you go into black and brown communities, there's an apartheid that's being you know visited upon people using food, like using unhealthy food, like somebody is profiting by the number of dialysis centers that are in these neighborhoods. And African-Americans lead every other ethnic group in deaths from preventable diseases like stroke, heart disease, cancer, diabetes. And so it really was a slow, subtle form of genocide. One thing that really brought that to my attention is that 
around that time, I was starting to actually watch people that I cared about pass away. So it went from just being a statistic of, oh, you guys are more prone to heart disease and you guys are more prone to diabetes, et cetera. So like, no, I'm actually losing people. If I don't do something, I'm going to continue to lose people. And if I don't do something, when I'm 40 and 50 years old, I'm going to be going to my friend's funeral. So it just got real basically at that point. And I started to just, you know, and then even when I was at Howard and like working in the community garden and stuff, DC is kind of small and there's trains. So even though it was a mission for me to try to go to Trader Joe's at that time, and it was like a walk for me to get to the Whole Foods, you know, I had to walk to like a different part of, I forget what that place is called, but I could walk there from Howard. It would be a mission. Like it'd take me 20, 30 minutes, but I could walk. So there was a big difference being back home in LA and just seeing LA is much more spread out and just seeing how challenging it was. And, and just, it was, it became very clear to me why the people in the neighborhood that I lived in had the health problems that, that, that they had. It was really, really clear. And you had someone else's mother give you another sort of shine on challenge. She gave you $300. What was that about? Yeah. So that kind of goes into the genesis of, of supermarkets. So maybe a year before supermarkets started, myself, my friend Lonnie Wade and my friend Kyle Jordan, we were just at Kyle's house. We were sitting on the couch and there were a bunch of ads playing. And I literally was so disgusted by the ads and I was like mad at the ads. And then we got into this long ass debate. We were up to like two in the morning, like debating about like, should we be working to change ads or should we just not fuck with ads at all? And so out of this conversation, we just started talking about what was wrong with the world. And like at the end of it, it was like, okay, what are we going to do about it? So we decided to every week meet and have an organic vegan meal and watch documentaries and like work on projects that would change the world. So we were called the lifted gift. At one of those sessions, the idea for supermarket was born. I had a lot of ideas about things that I wanted to do since college, like giving juices away on the corner, et cetera, because of the Goyce life. But it was a moment in which like together we say like, hey, like, why don't we start some sort of like a grocery store like for the community? Because we were watching a bunch of food documentaries and things like that and just like helping them change their diet and stuff. And so with these discussions that we would have, I guess they were kind of like the the child, the brainchild or just like the baby of power study group. I was basically trying to replicate the study group like in my life and with my friends. <laughs> and so through this, like sometimes other friends would come over we decided to do a larger one so that more friends could join. And so we needed somewhere to have it. So we reached out to Kat, who was the mom of our friend Cecil. And Kat said, sure, like you could have it here. And then like to our surprise, she was like, oh, like, and I'll also give you $300 to put the dinner on, which we were like, you know, we were all kind of on the struggle bus. And, you know, we were so grateful that like, we weren't even asking her for that. And so we put $200 towards preparing the meal that night. And about a hundred of those dollars went towards buying wholesale produce. So the first supermarket was actually in her house, like for our friends to like shop with us. And there's a video of that online. And the next month we had our first public supermarket. We just like saved those funds from that day. And then the next month we had our first public supermarket, which was in Lamarck Park, where people could come and buy things in person. Talk about the name supermarket. How did you come up with that? They hated the name. They didn't understand the name. A lot of people still don't understand the name. <laughs> but I just thought it was cool and like cute and very like millennial company-esque. Like millennial companies are all about like, even like right now we're on Ringer and what did they do? They took the E out of 
ringer and it's like now it's like cute and it's cool so like supermarket is basically supposed to be like a really hip cool like the streetwear of like organic fruits and vegetables is kind of the vision that i had and why the name is spelled so weird and it's like iconic it's like supermarket but it's like 2.0 you know so your first supermarket in the Merck park how did that go down it was very janky. There are pictures of it um, on our Instagram, like of the first supermarket. Like I said, we had like a hundred bucks to make everything happen. We didn't even have a table. My friend Danielle would like bring us her table every week, <laughs> every Sunday. <laughs> we didn't have a table, a tent. We didn't have chairs. We just had heart. And the crazy thing about it is that from the beginning, People were very appreciative, even though we were so bare bones and and so, you know, just like even with the money we had, we couldn't get what's called number one produce. So we had to get a lot of seconds, which is like produce that is still good to eat, but you wouldn't really find it on shelves because it's bruised or it doesn't look good or you have to sort through it. So that's what we could get based on our budget. So we had that. I hit up Vegan Street Fair, which was like a big Instagram account at that time. I said, hey, can you come out? He came out. And so we just had like a table's worth of stuff. And, you know, we sold out of the apples. Like I just posted on Instagram. I kind of used my my PR background to try to promote it before it happened. And, you know, the people that did came were grateful, you know, because just imagine like imagine. And then the other thing about Lamert is like it's a health conscious community to a large extent. And even like places like Baldwin Hills or Windsor Hills, like some of the people that live in these pockets of South Central our moderate income are are well off, but imagine your whole time living there. Like you might live there for 20 years, but every time you need to get something healthy, like you're having to drive out of your way and like go to the Whole Foods on another side of town. Or even if you want some veggie grill, you're having to go all the way to like Fairfax and something like to get food. So imagine what it feels like to be like an educated professional or whatever and living in this neighborhood and you just don't have what you need to live the lifestyle that you that you want to live and just having to live with that. And just that's that's just that's just what it is, you know, and even growing up, that's what they told me. Like, that's just what it is. Like, oh, we just we have to go to the other side of town for these things. So long story short, like people were really grateful. And from the beginning, people were supportive. Were you making any money? (laughs) No, (laughs) we made enough to like cover ourselves every week so that we could get more food. But like, I can't really say that we were like making money like. No, I don't think we were like, and that's why I ended up cleaning houses that time because I would be like late on my rent. And, you know, I'm so grateful to Felicia. You know, I was renting a room at that time in Mar Vista. I moved from um, 79th and 3rd to Mar Vista. And, you know, it was just a struggle. Like I just struggled a lot. You know, we might've been making like a little bit of change or something like that. But for the first couple of years, I definitely wasn't making enough to support myself. And what happened at Afropunk? So that was our first big media break. I was basically wanting to share our story and I was trying to get the word out and I was just feeling really frustrated because I felt like nobody was paying attention to us when I would try to tell people about what we were doing just as far as press was concerned. So I was just getting really heated. Like I was mad. And then one day I just like sent out this release to like a few different people. Like I sent it to somebody at Forbes um, that I saw that she did a, a piece on Trap Kitchen. And I sent it to, I think it was like an email that I found, possibly like somebody that represented Trap Kitchen. It was an email that I found. I was just trying to send it to anybody that I could basically. Like I think I sent it to Essence. Like 
I was finding whatever emails I could and I sent this release out. And then I woke up one day and on LinkedIn, there was just all these articles about us just all over the internet, literally. Like, so I found out that we were an Afropunk and then basically the chitlin circuit of Instagram, like found the story and was just like <laughs> finding random photos and just like posting it everywhere. <laughs> so we were like on the explore page on Instagram. It was just so random. And just like all the like black appreciation pages, like, we were like on all the pages, basically. Wow. And you guys went on to supply over 25,000 pounds of produce with an all-volunteer yeah. staff as, a, as of last year or as of, as of today. Well, as of today, we're at 70K. I have to update the website. Oh, my God. 70,000 70, yeah, pounds. pounds? Yeah. Wow. So it sounds like a pretty well-oiled system at this point. I'm the oil. I don't know. I, I don't know if You're I would say. Oil. I don't know if I would say it's well oil. Kind of like the biggest challenge right now is, you know, for the longest time I was just holding everything together. I'm the glue, and for us to do more, like I can't be the glue anymore. We need more people, and so we need capacity at this point. Like we need a program manager and like a store manager and like a bunch of different things. Well, that was my next question about the store, about Mr. Wisdoms. Were you guys, I know you did an, is it Indiegogo campaign to raise some funds right. to take, to open up a brick and mortar. Talk a little bit about that. The day that Nipsey passed, we were in Lamert Park, which is not far from where everything happened. And we, there's so many crazy things about that situation. Long story short, it was earth shattering and it was like very, it was very, it was very painful and it made me feel like I have to do something. I feel that he was assassinated. And the first feeling I had when I found out the news, like I, it just felt like a slap in the face and two people who were doing things for the community. So I low key felt personally attacked. Like I felt like there was an attack on activists in the community. And so we also found out that Mr. Wisdom's closed. And so Mr. Wisdom's was one of the only places where you could get like a healthy burger, like a veggie burger or like a wheatgrass shot or anything like that in the community for like 30 years. And so we found out at that point that it had been closed in September and that it had been purchased in January of that year. And, you know, we're in April at this time, at the beginning of April. And so we found out that that January it had been purchased. And so we had always been thinking about like, oh, like we're going to get a store at some point. But it's like, I didn't have any actions planned. Like I wasn't really about to do it. Not that I wasn't about to do it, but I was willing to procrastinate as long as possible as far as like taking that next step. And so that situation catapulted me into action. So we, we launched the Indiegogo to raise the funds needed to buy the place. It got a lot of support. I had never done any sort of crowdfunding. It was so challenging, like so challenging. And like, you know, for the most part, I was the main person doing everything. We had some really awesome people step up to help, but it was so much work. You raised $87,000, which was over your goal. We raised that am amount on Indiegogo. And as happens a lot of times, like you need more than you like initially try to raise. And so like we're still raising um, funds. We're actually in escrow right now on the property. So that's been my last month of just like getting all the documents together, like going back and forth with the lenders and things like that, getting inspections done. So I'm learning a lot in this process. It's a really involved process, but I'm going to be really happy when people could finally come and like sit down and have some food and get all the things that I always was having to leave my neighborhood for. And this is called the Keep Slauson, as in Slauson Avenue, Keep Slauson Fresh campaign. 
So that's in progress right now. If someone came to you, Olympia, let's say the four years ago version of Olympia came to today's version of Olympia. They didn't know each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she said, I'm thinking about doing this thing, uh, starting this this pop-up grocery service. What advice would you would you give her? I would tell her to establish her self-care habits early, like get a really strong self-care routine in place early, because once you get busy, it's really hard to establish those habits and taking care of yourself is not optional. Like for most of my life, I just saw it as something that was optional or I would get to when I wanted to. But some of the challenges that I've faced in the past year have just shown me that it's not optional and you don't have a choice and your body will shut down like if you don't take care of it. And I would tell her who she could trust, you know, like I would tell her like, okay, like you don't have to wait a year before you decide you can trust this person. You can just trust this person off the, off the bat. And then I would tell her to try to find a business partner from the beginning. Would you tell her to get a cell phone? Huh? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So then how are you defining success these days? Success these days is a is for supermarkets to become the Trader Joe's of the hood, for food apartheid to be eradicated by 2040, for me not to have to tell my children that they have to go to another side of town for anything, and increase the ability of black and brown and low-income people. I just want to empower people to go vegan and to like change their diet for the better. And I want there to be like hundreds of thousands of people who have like done 10-day juice cleanses because of us, or even if they don't live close to us or live in LA, like I want them to feel confident that whatever their budget is, like they can have a healthy diet. I want them to know how to take care of themselves and just be abreast of all the information that relates to preventable disease that can be reversed by diet. Beautiful. Well, I want to offer a couple of reflections from listening to your story. I'm always pretty amazed by how something that a person was into when they were very, very young ends up kind of playing out when they eventually find their path and their purpose. And it sounds like you have found that and that the club that you have started is the getting sovereignty over what you eat club <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and, and specifically helping people who have been part of this food apartheid that you're you're trying to demolish. So I want to acknowledge your your commitment and your diligence and, and courage for getting this whole thing off the ground and for starting. And I think your example is is a classic one of just just start. Yeah. You know, you don't need a table, you don't need a whole staff, you don't need you don't need anything except the willingness to make a difference. And let that be the first step. And then just put yourself out there and see what happens and iterate along the way. And I wish we had more time to go deeper into the, your story because I know you've had, you've had a ton of examples of that, mm -hmm. you know, not having a table even at the first pop-up and all of that. And it's just how it's kind of unfolded into a subscription service and a delivery service. And it's become very comprehensive. So I just want to thank you for that. And, and, and even though it may seem like nobody's watching or paying attention or cares, Hopefully, you'll have more people reaching out to you to volunteer after hearing your story. Is there any way that people can help or, or participate or access some of your services? 
who are listening to this podcast? Sure. We welcome everyone to visit supermarket.la slash donate to give whatever they can to help us get up and running next year with South Central's first full service organic grocery. You can learn more and kind of see us in action by visiting supermarket.la slash broken bread and checking out the docuseries that we were in hosted by Roy, Roy Choi that was on KCET and Taste Me, which got an Emmy, by the way. Uh, broken Bread got an Emmy. And I'm really proud of everybody. Yeah, we'll put all the links to everything that you listed in the show notes. And just let, for the record, how are you spelling supermarket? Because it's not spelled in the traditional way. So you spell it the normal way and omit the E's. So it's S-U-P-R-M-A-R-K-T. Beautiful. Well, Olympia, thank you very much again for uh, coming on and sharing your story. And I look forward to being able to cross paths with you at some point again in the near future. Thank you so much, Light. Thank you so much for having me and looking forward to doing Light Talk (laughs) 2.0. Thank you for listening to my interview with Olympia Osset of Supermarket. If you feel inspired to check out what she's up to, you can find her on Instagram. Just search supermarket, which is spelled like the word supermarket, but without the E's. And if you want to hear more stories like Olympia's, please subscribe to the podcast and check out the archive. You'll find many other interviews with incredibly inspiring people who've overcome all kinds of challenges in order to start their movement. Also, make sure you rate the podcast. It helps other listeners discover these inspirational stories, too. You can also find everything that Olympia and I discussed in the show notes, as well as a transcript of our entire interview on my website, lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're there, sign up for my daily dose of inspiration for short and sweet daily motivational emails directly from me each morning. And if you have any feedback or suggestions, you can always text me at 323-405-9166. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week with a new conversation from the end of the tunnel. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.